You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. following up our first episode of comrades read together where we're digging in chapter by chapter to the book no shortcuts organizing for power in the new gilded age by jane mcleavy this is a solo episode with nick dreger who's a contributing writer to the website organizing work which is a great website for all the nuts and bolts about labor organizing and you can find all the articles that they have available at organizing.org nick dreger wrote a review of No Shortcuts, and our conversation largely focuses on the arguments that he makes within, both the things that he compliments about the books as well as its political limitations. We're doing more episodes of Comrades Read Together, and we're going to be following this episode up with a conversation about chapters three and four in No Shortcuts. Those chapters largely deal with the history of the business union style SCIU versus the deep organizing style SCIU and the different results in the nursing sector, as well as a great chapter that's really a page-turner on the Chicago Teachers Union and how they ramped up to a 2012 strike against one of the most powerful mayors in the country, Ron Emanuel. If you like our show and enjoy the content, please follow us on social media and subscribe to us on SoundCloud or Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We also have all of our content available for free with transcriptions to many of our episodes at laborwaveradio.com. And we have just launched a new Patreon at patreon.com backslash laborwave. If you can help support this show, we have different ways you can contribute for as little as $3, as much as $10. You can become either a rank and filer, a committee member, or a strike captain. And in appreciation of all of our patrons, we have stickers illustrated zines and t-shirts all of these are custom original made designs and we print them in-house and we ship them to you again that's patreon.com backslash laborwave so let's start off first with can you introduce yourself yeah my name's nick dreger uh, i'm i guess what you'd call a longtime labor activist uh, i'm the executive director of the athabasca university faculty association for at least another couple of weeks and then i'm going on to a new job I've been an organizer uh, for various trade, well, for two trade unions, mostly the Industrial Workers of the World and the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. And you're a regular contributor to Organizing Work and I believe some other online journals. Yeah, Organizing Work is the one that I'm a regular contributor to. Um, I've, I've had some stuff put up, at, like um, I did an interview with Alberta Advantage and like sometimes I publish stuff in unions, union newsletters and that kind of thing, but, but mostly Organizing Work. We've been starting this little series called Comrades Read Together and decided to start with No Shortcuts because I think it's a really great uh, manual for labor organizing. And why I wanted to bring you on and talk to you is because I think you have a really solid review that's also critical of the book on organizing work. And for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with this website, you should check it out. It's organizing.work. There's no .com or anything. Really great pieces on just nuts and bolts of labor organizing that you don't get in a lot of places. But uh, maybe we should start with the things that you like about the book. And if you could elaborate a little bit on this joke in the very beginning about the need to always 
criticize people that have a bigger following than you. <laughs> Why okay. is that the why is that the standard of operation? I mean, it's it's really like I mean, it's not even like I'd say it's a strategic imperative. It's not even like a need. Look, if you're not talking to people that are bigger than you, or if you're talking to people that are all smaller than you, what are the hell? What the hell are you doing? Uh, because ultimately, if you're in the business of putting out a critique and a discussion and putting out a political line. Uh, you want it to have the biggest audience as possible. So you don't go talking to people with a smaller audience than you. You go talking to people with a bigger audience than you. So even in your reviews, you're thinking of it strategically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about the things about the book that you feel like are, are positive and qualities that you want more organizers to know? The fact that it opens with the 1199's advice to rookie organizers, and regardless of any criticisms you have of SEIU or the politics of that union or the politics inside that union, I think that advice, the advice that's given, um, and it's almost kind of presented as in this kind of wisdom of the ancients kind of way that it's like from a from halcyon days of a previous labor movement. I think it's solid advice. I don't think it's necessarily advice that's easily dated. In fact, it may even be timeless. And so I think that like just that alone is a really important grounding. I also think something else that's really important to MacLevy's uh, um, uh, like analysis is the way she grounds it in things that you can do uh, a lot of like for instance marxist analysis is is very much about like basically stick your finger in your mouth stick your finger in the air see what way the wind's blowing and the objective conditions will push you in the right direction and and i think mclevy mclevy's uh, approach is really good in that it actually it doesn't just reduce it down to i think i use in the article the normal ray moments mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't just reduce it to normal ray moments it's not spontaneous things that just kick off and you capitalize on she shows that it's part of a pattern and a deliberate process that you develop and cultivate over time and i think that's that's really really important uh maybe one of the most important insights and something the left in particular needs to hear when they're talking about unions more than anybody else right because it actually like it gives agency to the working class it gives agency to workers yeah, it's not this deterministic thing where like basically like where you're just kind of blowing in the wind and, and, and you go whatever way that the objective conditions go. It does actually allow you to look at organizing also in a way that builds agency. When you don't have organizations that have real power, uh, then you, you have less agency. You have less control over the circumstances you're under. Before we recorded, you were talking about the kind of waxing and waning between how we just cheerlead on the left or we just ruthlessly criticize ourselves and the ruthless criticism I see often comes down to like this claim that people just don't understand the material conditions like you were saying and that this was always a failed strategy to begin with and like how could you have ever been so unintelligent to even take this on <laughs> I do appreciate it like you're saying that McLevy actually lays some of the blame on ourselves and some of the ways that we've made strategic errors and mistakes that we do have control over Absolutely. That doesn't mean objective conditions aren't there. There are real horizons and limits to what you're doing and circumstances do matter. But it, it's a cop-out, right, uh, to, to reduce it all down to that. It's a way of basically saying, I'm not marginal because I'm doing something wrong. I'm, not, I'm marginal because the world isn't ready for my genius yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so what I like about the review is that you take this kind of zoom out picture to begin with of like, where does McLevy's politics lead us? And I think that that's a really good question, that there's a lot of great stuff about how do we build militant unions, build powerful unions, but then the question of to what end, like what's the result at the end of the line? You suggest that she really fits in this tradition 
of um, the former communist president, William Foster, and how he had this kind of belief about politics as like a project of boring from within existing institutions. Could you say more about that? I don't know if I'd necessarily say she's a Fosterite. I think that she invokes Foster and seems to have a lot of respect for Foster. And organizer to organizer, the die had game, there's stuff to learn there, definitely worth reading. I'm not going to say never look at Foster. But I do think that you need to also look at Foster's approach to unionism over his whole life. It's, it's one thing to look at the steelworker stuff in the 19-teens um, and building it up. But you also need to look at his relationship to the big communist unions in the 30s, his relationship to the CIO, his relationship to the United Electrical Workers. Uh, for instance, Foster presided, um, and that was the end of his, his, his being in charge of the Communist Party in the U.S., but, you know, he was the one who put, flipped the switch and switched and told the communists to pull out of the United Electrical Workers that they built from the ground up largely through good, solid, tested organizing from similar traditions, the advice to rank and file organizers, and pulled them into the union that was raiding them out of existence because they were a communist union. So, like, Foster is, is, is an interesting guy because in a lot of ways you can talk about this stuff as technical matters as organizing. But if it's not a political commitment, if building the workers up in, uh, isn't a political commitment, it leads you in some pretty weird directions and some pretty cynical directions. Um, and so what happens is if you're only talking about ways to build workers up, to develop them, to put them in charge as an organizer, what you're doing is you're leaving off all of the ways that unions and trade union politics disempower workers and pull them away from their own power and their own agency. Um, so, so, for instance, uh, almost every story in her book, in, in No Shortcuts, ends with basically a where are they now kind of thing. And where they are now is either being a prospect for electoral politics or being someone involved in electoral politics. And that does say something about her political perspectives or political views. A lot of this stuff is instrumental to getting lefts into the Democratic Party in order to gain to the political arena there. Like, look, it says we lose when we, put, when we don't put workers into struggle. That's the last key point in that list. How does getting people involved into the left arena in the Democratic Party put workers in struggle? And it, it doesn't. It puts working class leadership in struggle with, you know, basically business leadership, progressive liberal business leadership inside the Democratic Party. But that's not putting workers in struggle. That's putting a couple of leaders in a political struggle inside a, a political machine. Uh, and that's that's very different than the ethic in the rest of her book on organizing. And it kind of cuts against that. So if I could just restate this, you're saying that McAlevey's ultimate aims and how you build unions is really just to build bases for the Democratic left, right? The electoral arena. I, I definitely think that McAlevey feels that you need economic power in order to back up left Democratic politics in the U.S., and in that framework, she's very much in line with people like the Jacobin crowd and that kind of thing, right? And she wants this kind of class warfare in this, this class struggle, not to build working class power on working class terms, but to build working class power on the terms of left political actors in the Democratic Party. And then, you know, those limitation I would think for this is that when you get down to it, like you say in the article, the legal framework is really what determines the power that you can get up into a certain point, right? And then the concessions are made on those terms. Exactly. Like there was a, you and I were talking a little bit about the various reviews of, of, of McLevy and there's, there's other ones than, than mine, obviously, and some from some pretty big names. 
And I thought one of the most interesting ones was actually the Labour Notes review, because Labour Notes actually has a take that, in my opinion, politically, is not that different than McAlevey's. It's very much uh, trade union reform, democratic fighting militant unions. But in the, the Labour Notes review, what they say is, is, is look, you got to understand, though, that you can't just do mass public bargaining when you really want to bargain. It undermines the process of bargaining because the bargaining team on both sides can't speak freely and frankly, and particularly on your side, your people, even if they're exploring an idea, are going to be worried that exploring an idea is going to expose them to being called a sellout and being too willing to compromise and all of that. And look, as someone who's been at several negotiating tables, and McAlevey knows this very well as someone who's a veteran negotiator herself, I actually think that that's actually a pretty fair point. But the problem is that what we're looking at is bargaining inside the Wagner Act framework. And, and so what you're looking at is bargaining as a technical exercise as structured by the labor relations system. And so what happens is like, yeah, if you're thinking about bargaining in those terms, you're, you're absolutely right. If your goal is a good contract with as many gains on your side of the, of the tally and as few gains on their side of the tally as possible, I think it's actually a very good point. But McAlevey's point, I think, is that she's pushing towards a sort of political commitment that has the workers taking things into their own hands, carrying things forward. And that's a very different dynamic than the technical legal practice of bargaining at a collective bargaining table. And the two cut against each other. The the legal processes, and, and this goes back to the 30s and back to the origins of the CIO and the Wagner Act, and these two things developed in tandem. It's a conscious political intervention in the labor movement in order to basically create incentives for a certain kind of unionism. And that kind of unionism is the overwhelmingly dominant kind of unionism today. So when McAlevey comes in, she's kind of trying to make trade unions as they exist operate in a different way than, uh, than they're supposed to. And whether or not that's possible or not is, is an open question. But what this guy is saying is, look, look, you're running the machine wrong. And he's right. And I think McAlevey is also right to say, yeah, but I'm trying to break it. <laughs> Right. And so, uh, so, but the problem is that by trying to break it, you do need to actually have a political criticism of that bargaining. You need to explain why those advice, that advice to rookie organizers, the fundamental underlying logic of working class self-activity and empowerment is actually fundamentally opposed to the collective bargaining process. And that's not even getting into the questions of how servicing works and how you enforce that contract when you got it. Because the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of room under the current labor relations system for people to organize and mobilize and fight right up until that contract is signed. Um, but, but even once you're at the bargaining table, things start getting constricted, right? Um, like a lot of stuff that, that might have been very popular in the 30s would probably be called bad faith bargaining now. And you're going to have the labor board breathing down your neck and intervening that way. When it comes to the negotiation table... I've had some of this experience with trying to do this like mass participation negotiations. And I think there's a lot of successes and a lot of like things to celebrate about it. But there are things that seem like inherent limitations at the same time. And one of them is that for me as an organizer, it was always really difficult to communicate that the language that you win in the contract is really only half the battle because enforcement of the contract, like you were saying, is actually, I would actually say it's harder. Enforcing the contract is just as difficult, if not more difficult than actually winning the language in the first place. Because there's so many ways that the legal framework and labor, it's not labor relations, right? It's management relations that it can just like completely undermine it. So that's one thing that seems hard to communicate in the process of this like really robust mass participation negotiation system. 
the style model that she's purporting to champion. But the other thing is that it was also really difficult to get member leaders understanding that the bargaining was only a tactic within a bigger strategy. Like it was really hard not to like see bargaining as the end in and of itself. Like that was the final line. And then you get demoralized when all these like really ambitious proposals ultimately don't win because you can't win easily things like housing subsidies for all workers in the workplace, especially with the bad faith bargaining kind of policies constricting that. So I, I think that that's just like me sharing some insights and in around ways that I've seen it limited as well. No, absolutely. And, and it's interesting because like you, you take the typical Marxist criticism of say like a, a, a militant emancipatory radical unionism and, and it's that it's economism like that, that you're narrowly focused on the workplace and all of that and you can't and then again you've got McElvey saying well we want to bargain for the public good we want to expand this we want expansive demands and all of that and I think that I think McElvey is interesting in that I think she post pu- puts forward fundamentally subversive questions to the labor relations system and I think that those are valuable and important questions, but I also think by not answering them, she's either being coy or she's falling short. And I think that the, 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 basically the Marxist argument about this just being narrow economism is, is, is kind of a dead end too. I mean, the truth of the matter is that if, if little Marxist reading groups were going to overthrow all the stuff that they've promised to, I think we would have seen some kind of even modest gains from it in recent years, and we haven't. Um, the truth of the matter is that, that it is a matter of power, and power is not a matter of the correct analysis. It's a matter of power. And ideally, you want power wielded by people with the correct analysis, but the truth of the matter is until you settle the technical questions of establishing that power, um, you can have the best line in the world that doesn't mean shit. So, but what's interesting about the, the McAlevey dynamic with this is she's, in my opinion, I think probably being a bit coy, but then she's not posing this question. And what happens is that everything just kind of falls back to, well, then we need electoral politics and well, we need this and we need this. And, and you're just back to stuff that again, cuts against the fundamental ethic of the 1199 advice. That's actually, again, really good. And I mean, I think about bargaining for the common good. I really love it. And I think there's a lot there, but what I've come to realize is that you really need it within certain sectors of the workforce. Like you need a labor union that's big enough, that is positioned enough to create enough strategic disruptions that it actually works. Like if you have a small workforce or a workforce where it's like, you're not actually essential workers when it comes down to it, well, fuck you and you're bargaining for the common good because who cares what you want? That's exactly. And and this is the thing, right? Is that the it ties into her conception of bounded constituencies that I think are really, it's a really important conception. And I think the way she frames it is really good where she kind of says, look, Occupy is based on kind of interlocking networked, self-selecting groups that pull together and they get a lot of people, but it's kind of a fart in the wind and that there's no structure to it. um, And it doesn't have any roots in society. And then she points to bounded constituencies. That's really interesting, but her definition of bounded constituencies doesn't have a power analysis of what's going on inside those constituencies. So you'll see everything from unions to churches. And that's actually a lot closer to Saul Alinsky that she justifiably pans. But the truth of the matter, what's unique about a union is that it has a bounded constituency that's subject to somebody else's power. And that dynamic between the boundaries of that constituency and the power that's exercised on it and the fact that that power structure needs that constituency 
is what creates the power of trade unions. And I don't think the trade unions are the only organizations that do that. There's lots of organizations that are bound to constituencies that are subject to a power structure, whether it's like the Montgomery bus boycott or a tenant strike, where there is a dynamic between a community being needed by a power structure for various things and being drawn on for the power of that power structure, but also having fundamentally an ability to turn the tables on that power structure when they act collectively. And, and I think that that's kind of what's missing from the bargaining from the public good is the union has the power to bargain for the public good. But the public is an amorphous, vaporous kind of thing that doesn't really, it doesn't exist to the degree the union does in political terms. And unless you have those constituencies that are organized that understand that dynamic and understand inside the, the, the power dynamics and the nature of their, their constituency, you're just left with a constituency with a boundary. And again, a constituency with a boundary, I think that the best template is an electoral district or a constituency or riding in, in Canada. And, and, and I think that those are things that, that are basically their lines on maps. They're not really mapped onto any existing power structure in society, and they're just simply an administrative unit of the, uh, of the capitalist system and how we legislate things. And that's not a place where we have power. But McAlevey would probably think that that's an okay constituency, an okay boundary to just accept that exists in and of itself. And, and I think, and, and I think she clearly does, right? Like she thinks electoral politics is a really important part of the equation, and she thinks that the reason we're losing electoral politics is insufficient trade union power to bolster the prospects of left candidates at the polls. Um, and, and yeah, but again, there's a dynamic there where basically left wing politicians, as much as anybody have had a role in undermining uh, various militant trade union efforts or even moderate trade union efforts, frankly. Um, like the truth of the matter is that once you're in there, it's your job to manage and balance that budget and to make things work. Um, and it doesn't matter whether or not you're Syriza in Greece, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party or the Alberta NDP, all of these organizations uh, fundamentally have to manage that, 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 that dynamic of struggle from the top, from the other side. Yeah, I want to keep exploring this, but there's something that I wanted to just talk about briefly, because I like in your review how you mention that McLevy just kind of met, uh, talks about churches occasionally, just kind of like scatters them throughout the book. And when she's talking about like structure-based organizing and bounded constituencies, churches seems to be her only example when you talk about the community larger than the workplace. And I find it just to be a strange reference point, because how much power do churches really have? anymore in our culture and society? I mean, I'm a rural guy in a rural area, and I would say the churches hold a certain amount of power. I do think that churches, if you're organizing and in the right community, um, I think churches are an important place to win over if you can. But again, a church is a very particular kind of bounded constituency, and it's not the same as a union. And again, if you're drawing a church in behind a union struggle and they don't have an independent source of power, but they can definitely bolster your power, that's something that your analysis probably needs to account for, um, especially if you're not just cynically using people, right? And I'm, and I'm not saying McAlevey's consciously or cynically using people, but I think the outcome is that people, if a union has alliances with people and there's not a clear understanding of the different power dynamics at work for all of the parties and how they relate to the, the, the person you're negotiating against, I, I do think that there's an opportunity for a little bit of cynicism there. Because the truth of the matter is bargaining for the public good, um, what I would see as someone 
with a business union organizer hat, uh, uh, bargaining hat on is you've got your list of demands and priorities and you always have a few outrageous demands that they're never going to meet and never get. And what you do is you trade those off for some of the sweeter second tier demands you have at the last minute. And you're going to quickly get that at the bargaining table. And some people are going to feel burned. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not managing that very carefully and talking about what you're doing and there's not a long-term strategy there. Uh, because ultimately, bargaining for the public good is something that I think is, is a net positive, but everybody has to have not just a seat at the table, but real power backing up. Right. And what you were saying before about when you get to that level of like union leadership, you become, in effect, a manager of sorts. Like You have to impose a certain stricture around what the union's allowed to do. I've definitely seen that manifest in real life and that's that's just a reality for even like let's say you have an ideal perfect revolutionary union the simple fact is they're going to have to manage resources um and that's that's the nature of reality like there's manufactured scarcity and then there is real scarcity of resources you only have so many organizers your membership can only strike for so long so often um your shop for volunteers burnout and fatigue is an issue and that's a resource that you manage uh, which means you do pick your battles. And that's that's not something to like wring your hands and feel bad about. A guilt trip is not going to make more resources appear out of nowhere. It's going to deplete people faster. So what you need to do is, is have an honest and straightforward analysis of what you're managing, why you're managing, and what the power you're bringing to bear on the situation is. And, and I think that that kind of comes back to, to one of the things that, that I also criticize in the in the review, which is the uh, structure test. You want to say more about that? Yeah, and, and the structure test is, is, it's a really interesting concept, and I don't fundamentally disagree with the practice of basically taking actions and then mapping the way things respond and mapping your support on your side. That, that, that's a basic, important thing. But you'll notice when, when she's doing her assessments, the first question you should ask, and it's not, it's kind of an afterthought or not even really mentioned explicitly, is did you win? And I hate to say it because I think McAlevey is, is as a matter of ethics and personal professional um, commitment, committed to empowering the workers. But I think that that is a very staffer perspective showing through. Um, that, that it, and it does, it, it creates a kind of inauthentic relationship with the workers in that it makes it look like you're moving chesses, pieces on a chessboard. Because you're not just taking actions to assess your structure. You're not just taking actions to improve your map. You're not just taking actions to get a better analysis of the power dynamics at work. You are taking action to win. And it's important because there are risks being taken. Every action is a risk. And so it's not just a structure test. There needs to be a thorough debrief. And this is also important because when you bring the workers into this discussion, when they're involved in taking an action, the most important thing you do after that action is debrief on the action. What happened? How did it play out? How do you feel? Did you move forward on your demands? Did you get some of what you want, all of what you want? Most importantly, enough of what you want? The question of whether or not you won is one of the most nuanced and complicated and political questions in trade union politics. Uh, and the truth of the matter is that there will always be someone to your left saying when you settle on an issue that you're a sellout and someone to your right that said you were recalcitrant and reckless and you won because you got lucky. And the simple fact is that, that those discussions on what winning is and how you won and what happened are the most important ones to be honest about and the hardest ones to be honest about. Because on the other side of it, as the person who's often criticizing organizers, everybody is justifiably very defensive about what 
it's a process that takes a tremendous amount of personal sacrifice and emotional investment to get anywhere. Well, another thing that you highlight in your review is that McAlevey doesn't attend to answering why the powerful unions that she takes a lot of inspiration from historically, namely the CIO, ultimately lost their power and how that came about. And I really liked your conversation around that because I agree McAlevey has good methods for identifying organic leaders, as she calls them. But you talk about needing to attend to people that aren't yet organic leaders, but you can develop into them. And then also having like a strategy and governance and accountability around that to ensure that the organic leaders don't just become the next like hierarchy that oppresses workers. That's what I think you're talking about. Yeah. And, and I think the CIO is a really interesting example of that. Like, like again, there's a bunch of CIO unions and, and a myriad of them. And it's a really interesting period because we basically went from like, boom, no, no unions, lowest union density in history except now. Um, to the greatest union density in North American history. And the, the unions that flourished seemingly came out of nowhere, right? The United Electrical Workers went in 1936 from, you know, a scattered handful of locals uh, that merged as independent unions into 600,000 members within 10 years, right? Like, that's just, that's unreal. Um, you know, a lot of other unions really grew and exploded. Um, and, and a lot of it is there's this dynamic interplay between the legislation the organization that was going on and the growth of the CIO. And everything was revolving around politics inside the CIO and, and what was going on. And basically the US government was pulling out all the stops to make sure if the CIO was gonna exist, that it was going to exist in a way that they could accommodate, right? So you've got like militant strikes, like in 1935, they named the big three strikes, right? So you have Toledo Auto Light, Minneapolis Teamsters and West Coast Longshore. What's interesting about is Toledo Autolite independent socialists that merge into the trots later, Teamsters, trots, ILWU are the, the Stalinists, the, the CP, and all three are, a lot of their organizers draw back to a syndicalist tradition in the 19-teens. And so what happens is that you've got this syndicalist tradition that's anti-political in a certain sense, and these guys say, well, we've hit the limits of this anti-political struggle, we're going to develop with the insights of the Russian Revolution, and we're going to start reading Lenin and form political parties, but we're also going to keep organizing. And this organizing all starts in some, some of it in the early 20s, some of it in the late 20s, but all of it like a good six, seven years before the Wagner Act is passed. And then you have these three big strikes that are communist-led, and everything blows up. And then what happens is that, that the, the response from the US government is, okay, we're going to certify unions, we're going to recognize them, but there's going to be some ground rules and there's going to be a disciplinary mechanism in that you get legal rec rec recognition that is basically separated from the boss recognizing you and we can hold that over your head. And that's ultimately what Taft-Hartley was. Taft-Hartley was exploiting that recognition and the reliance on it. UE didn't exist before the Wagner Act. And when the Wagner Act happened within 10 years, it had 600,000 members. It grew on that. So what happened was that you had this political commitment, these people who, like um, James Cannon actually has a really good way of putting it in his polemic against the IWW, where he says, you know, the Wobs, Vincent St. John, these guys, they were good at handling men. And they see that's just technical stuff. The political stuff, the real political stuff, that's the stuff that's written about in Russia. And that's the stuff that's going to take us to the next level. And so what you've got is 
a kind of downplaying of the technical aspects of organizing and playing up the political aspects of your political party. And so their idea is the way that we do this is we get the right ideas into people's heads by drawing them in. And we draw them into the political party where we give them a political education and analysis, and that pushes them forward. And I actually think that that's pretty close to McAlevey's kind of approach, right? She sees this kind of left formation, the Democrats, the DSA, and that kind of thing, Jacobin, as the sort of poles around which she's pulling people into, and they're going to get developed into that through organizing. And so what's interesting, though, is that she plays up the technical aspects up to that point but then also doesn't have a critique of how all of these different systems cut out that development of workers into working class leaders, into people who can control their own fate, into people who can exercise agency. There's no account of how it cuts them out at the knees because in the early 30s, there are all these organizing projects, a bunch of them popped up from above ground and been going on for a long time, had some vicious strikes. Uh, this is just a gut feeling, but I'm sure that s some people in the labor relations scene at that time knew that there were more of these coming. So they quickly got that act out in there. And the next thing you know, all of these unions explode onto the scene. It looks spontaneous, but it isn't. It's been building for decades. Um, and then what happens is that there's a huge all-out fight inside the CIO between the various different factions and politics. And it's not just the, like, the, the right versus left. The left slit each other's throats, too. And what happens is by the end, uh, what you've got is everything consolidated in the hands of guys like John L. Lewis, who's, to, 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 to quote somebody, uh, mentioning somebody else has got all of the, like, the ruthlessness of the socialists and none of the socialism. And what they do is, is they then kind of run it with an iron fist and they run out the lefts. And so, but then what happens is the, the, the story backwards is, oh, well, we got rid of all of the socialists. But what's interesting about this is that you would think that if the socialist parties were able to cultivate everything that they built, everything that they developed already, that they would actually be able to, you would think that they would actually be able to replicate it again and build new socialist unions. Or at least withstand the, uh, the offensive within their own unions and not like suffer those defeats. Exactly. But that's because they privileged developing their political analysis and ideas they, do, they privilege developing the big ideas guys and replicating that over the people who could handle men and that technical skill because they don't think it's political. And fundamentally, they think that's a technical aspect that you use to build to the point when you get political. And I think that that's where McAlevey gets, gets it wrong, is I think that, that she starts with 1199's advice, but that's just handling men. Um, and the whole book is on handling men and how, how, how to move pieces around and how to develop people but it's not about giving them agency. It's about getting them onto your program and building power. And what happens though, is you're not building their agency. You're not building their confidence. I mean, you're building some of them. You're building the leader's agency and confidence and you're taking their constituencies along for the ride with them. I think that that's where the syndicalist movement in the previous decades has really important insights on how the governance of a democratic union should work. Um, and lots of these unions were internally quite democratic. But ultimately, they were wiped off the map. United Electrical Workers still exists, sure, but it's 30,000, 35,000 members as opposed to its 600,000. And lots of them were completely wiped out, right? Like my mill and smelter workers, which is the old WFM, uh, they're gone. Lots of these CIO unions are nothing anymore. And McLevy, too, is a story about being kicked out of the labor movement for being effective at her job, right? I mean, she got pushed out of the SCIU in her own memoir because she was effective and there was a staff hierarchy as well there and she got pushed out too. Absolutely. Although to be honest, 
I only have so much sympathy, and I'm speaking as a union staffer, for radicals who join unions and want to be radicals and then are shocked when they're told, no, you do a job, you do what I tell you. Like, ultimately, when your staff, and, and again, you can't have it both ways. If you've got a radical democratic union, you don't think that the organizers aren't going to have to do things they don't want to do sometimes, and they're not going to have the whip cracked on them. Like, the truth of the matter is that if it's run by the members, it's run by the members. Staff with radical ideas who want to substitute their radical ideas for the membership isn't more democratic. Yeah, I think this has been really great analysis of the book. I'm kind of wondering with all of these insights and this analysis, fast forwarding to today, what I struggle with is thinking of like an outside of this legal framework that really does circumscribe the power of workers. Because I, I cut my teeth organizing through the IWW. I do staff organizing now with like mainstream unions. And I feel like everybody's wrong around me because like nobody's giving me anything that I can actually hold on to and say like, actually, this makes sense. I heard of a recent story, not to like throw too much dirty laundry out there, of a union, a radical union that was about to sign a contract that was like almost impossible to win in the first place, not being allowed into the bigger radical union because there was a no strike clause in it. And my question was, how the fuck do you sign a contract in the United States without a no strike clause? Like that just, it doesn't seem like it exists to me. So the IWW actually has a couple of them. There's one at the recycling shops, I believe. Actually, there might be two at the recycling shops. Um, and I believe there's a couple others. There's also one United Electrical Workers contract that has a, um, from the old days, uh, has a grievance procedure that allows this stuff. But the truth of the matter is that I think that if you're going to do that from the outside, first off, you can win things without winning a contract. And I think that if you're going to take that path, you should focus on winning things before you actually try and get a comprehensive contract. And the second thing is, I think that there's basically two paths. One is the mainstream unions trying to break out of the labor relations framework. And I think radical unions have the advantage of trying to work outside of it. And both of them are very, very difficult tasks. But uh, the simple fact is that a contract in itself isn't good. It's only as good as what the contents are. I think I know what union you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I have to admit, I'm not super impressed hearing there's like three unions that exist without a no strike clause. No, I think you may want to actually look at the contents of that contract, particularly the arbitration clause um, that's already signed. And that's actually at least as dangerous on business union terms and something most business unions I know sign. It's a winner-take-all arbitration clause, so it means that the union pays if they lose and the employer pays if they lose the arbitration. Um, and it means instead of splitting it, which is the standard practice, which in a small union full of poorly paid workers means that they'll probably be bankrupt the first arbitration they lose. Um, so so there's, there's more problems to it than just the no-strike clause. And second, that contract is not signed yet. They haven't actually dealt with economic issues. So they've signed off on most of the language. They haven't signed on salary. So it remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, but let me pose this to you. So just thinking about, because this is something that I believe in too, but I'm skeptical up to a point. Like you can win things without winning a contract. Absolutely. But sustaining those victories, how long does that last? How long does sustaining those victories under the contract last? Like you said yourself earlier today, that you've got these contracts, right? And then it's on you to enforce them. And then there's two things pushing against you. One, the employer's just going to defy. Um, if they've got the money and resources, especially if they're a big employer, and then you've got a triage, what violations of the contract do you have the money to go after? And then you have to make a strategic decision. 
Second, um, even with a contract, you know, the truth of the matter is you can get it in front of an arbitrator and an arbitrator can say this means something completely different than everything else because in 20 other cases, this was interpreted this way. Um, so you think you sign one thing, the next thing your arbitrator says, well, no, based on arbitral jurisprudence, this is what it actually says um, because in the following cases, it said that. Um, so, so the truth of the matter is you don't actually have as much control as you do. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as durable gains under a contract. I don't want to snow you on that. Like, it's obviously true. But, I, but as someone who does contract administration and marketing, you know, for a job, like, I'm pretty cynical about that. But I will say, IWW unions also have actually, on business union terms, had some pretty impressive gains. Um, you know, like things like the Starbucks Workers Union forcing uh, the salary of baristas up by $2 an hour in Manhattan in the early 2000s. That's nothing to sneeze at and probably not something you would win in a, in a contract negotiation, but it's something you can win on your own. Uh, Stardust, Stardust Workers Union, um, they're fan, Stardust Family United, they're a fantastic union that's won all sorts of stuff, including turning around some big firings. And it's not that there wasn't any legal processes there at all either. But the simple fact is that a lot of the issues that they have are settled on the floor very quickly, the old style way, and like they were in the early 30s. Down tools, you fold your arms and the boss comes to the table real quick, you settle it within 10 minutes and everybody's back to work. Now, here's the other thing though. Mainstream unions are structured for a certain kind of workplace and the template of the Wagner Act model is also workplaces that are generally over 100 members. Sometimes they'll go down as low as 30, but the truth of the matter is every union has a line on which they won't sign workers up below um, if the workplace is this small. There are entire industries in our country where you just simply cannot get a union to talk to you because the workplaces are all too small. And food and retail is one of them. So if you're going to organize in restaurants, you're going to have to confront the fact that the vast majority of restaurants are not large workplaces. And you're not going to have the dues revenue off of that industry in order to finance what you need. I mean, I think that all these things are true. When I was, uh, we had a conversation earlier on the show with Bill Fletcher and something that he said struck me as pretty important for understanding today's labor forces in that the kind of career life of a worker in like a particular industry is not as much the standard today. Maybe it wasn't as much the standard in the past. And like what you're talking about is like the workplaces are becoming such that there's more of these small sites that bigger labor unions that actually have the resources that they could sink into like helping build them up won't because they're just not interested if it's not, like you said, a certain line under net. And even when they are interested, keep in mind that a big union with a bunch of hundred, like like basically say thousand member bargaining units, and then they take on a couple of 20 person bargaining units. One, those units are not going to get the servicing the thousand person units are getting, just as a matter of not being as loud and not being as big and not being as big. But even then, charity cases don't have the power that other that, that the other units do as well, right? Like, let's be honest here. You're saying internal to the union itself, they don't have the power. Exactly. So, and this is why it's important to actually, and why I still defend the idea of radical independent unions. I really think that if people want a mainstream business union contract, I think it's important that they go and organize with a mainstream business union, find the limits of it and fight and push back against those limits. And maybe they'll become part of the people inside the labor movement pushing to break out of the labor model. And that's a good thing. But the problem is that when you've got a, a, a group of workers that want to organize with a radical union, and then they know the bylaws of the union, they've been told the bylaws of the union, and one of them being we don't sign no strike clauses, and then they go and sign a no strike clause and then come back to the union and say, what, this is a problem? 
I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. You need to actually, if you're going to be with a union that signs no strike clauses, there's a hundred of them. There's a thousand of them. If you want to be with a union that has that doesn't sign no strike clauses, I think the IWW that's like a special niche that's carved out for itself that I think it should defend. Well, okay, I just want to keep asking you these like more pressing questions. The IWW has like what six thousand members? I think seven thousand now. Yeah. Okay, and the AFL-CIO has almost thirteen million. Absolutely. So- I think the IWW strategy makes sense, but maybe to me, it sounds like a compelling argument endorsing the McLevy kind of alignment that you're saying about boring from within these mainstream unions, the William Foster approach, which clearly has limits. You've identified them pretty well. But how do we operate today when we really, in the IWW approach, like we have so few resources? We have like, I wish we had more members. I wish we had more of these resources that we could devote and invest in all the like hot shops around and even strategic sectoral approach. Well, and I think that part of it is I actually think the IWW could be more effective even if it had fewer members. The problem is the way it takes in members. Um, the vast majority of the IWW's members, and it's it's seen pretty phenomenal growth, like it's tripled in size in the last five or six years, um, has been largely people who are kind of left-leaning and mad about things like the Trump administration and bigger political questions, and they want to get involved in the union, but there's not a union at their workplace, so they just sign up online. It's kind of a passive recruitment strategy, um, and it's it's not that hard to actually pick people up that way, and I, th- I, I think the IWW may continue to grow along that path, but it's not necessarily going to build a union that way. Um, And this is where my criticism of the IWW kind of comes in, is I think that the campaigns where the IWW does well look in some respects a lot more like the kind of stuff McAlevey's talking about, but not in the sense that, uh, not in the political stuff that I'm criticizing, but in the technical aspect in that she's looking at bounded constituencies, not self-selecting groups. She's looking at a power analysis on the floor, and she's developing, you know, through organic leaders, an organization that can self-administer and run its own affairs. And I think in those respects, the IWW's bylaws are actually pretty great. They're, they're very good, powerful tools. It's a very democratic union when it's functioning as a union. It's also a very democratic mass recruitment organization when it's functioning as that. But that's, that's a problem the IWW needs to overcome, frankly. Um, and I think to a certain degree, the IWW has a little bit of insecurity for the reasons that you mentioned, that, like it doesn't have 13 million members or even say 40,000 or 35,000 members like the United Electrical Workers. And as worth noting, United Electrical Workers get called small, marginal, and not particularly important by the mainstream labor movement as well. And they have 35K members. So the IWW has got a very long way to go. Well, and I'm also thinking about like DSA, because you're saying, and I think it probably is similar for DSA, there's a passive recruitment model in a lot of ways. It's like anybody's in, you know, that wants to. And I think for a political party, it kind of makes sense. You're not building people's power over the production process. You're not mapping power relations. The DSA is saying, this is our program. Uh, We want to push the Democrats to the left. This is our path to socialism. This is the brand of socialism we believe in. If you like it, sign on the dotted line. And I think that that's actually... That's actually consistent. I think it, it, it makes sense, right? Of course, their socialism is the socialism of signing on the dotted line. The problem with the IWW is that deep down inside, it knows it's wrong, but it also knows it can pick up some quick, easy members by having socialism, of, uh, unionism of sign on the dotted line. And that's the actual problem, is that it, it's a harder path. It's, it's not easy, but the truth of the matter is that when the business unions use IWW methods, it works. When the IWW uses business, uh, IWW methods, it works. It gets real results, right? 
Uh, the problem is that it's 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 a kind of crisis of confidence. Well, I wonder too if it's also a crisis. I mean, the IWW has a pretty specific position about staff, right? And like a reluctance to that as well. And some for me, a lot of times when I've engaged with IWW organizing, I find that the reliance on salts as like kind of the primary method of starting up a hot shop clearly can only go so far. Yeah, and I think actually salts are overused in the IWW. Like some of our best campaigns, again, Stardust is a really good example. There was no salts there. Um, they came to us, we figured it out, we worked with them, we developed it, right? Salt, salts are really, really overused. Um, and the truth of the matter is, even with the IWW, salts aren't really salts in business, like business unions use them. IWW salts are a bunch of kids who work at any number of crap jobs anywhere and all decide to get a job at the same crap job um, in order to kind of push an agenda. And that's not a problem. It's got its limits. It's overused. But that's not exactly how business unions do solve it, right? Like it's a very different program. The IWW and staff is a really interesting question because the other problem with the IWW is that, and I think it's again tied to the general recruitment model where we pull in people from all over the left, particularly the kind of anarchist scene, um, is the IWW is not the best at administering itself. So what scares me the most about the IWW getting staff is you realize that sometimes you're gonna have to fire people, you know, and like and sometimes you're gonna have to do performance reviews, kind of write job descriptions, you're gonna have to do these things. And, and I think a lot of IWWs, even the ones that want staff, want it both ways. They want the staff, they want the, the resources that come with it. I don't know necessarily if the IWW is quite ready to reckon with the, the political problems that come with staff. So if you had the ability to like recommend something that would be taken up right away uh, by the IWW or even just any kind of labor organization that wants to maintain radical independence, what would be the first step? So just the first step for how to organize. I think the IWW already has campaigns in a number of workplaces. So the first step is to build an organization that, that cultivates and develops campaigns. They're doing that. The second step is to develop bylaws that empower the workers on the job and on the shop floor. I think the IWW is good at developing and having those bylaws. I don't think it's the best at consistently enforcing them. No, there's a problem with governance there. And, and, and they need to get better at an even-handed, dispassionate enforcement of the rules. And that means just because someone's super cool uh, doesn't mean that you just let them off the hook because they did something wrong. And that includes signing no strike clauses. <laughs> and then, and then what, what they need to do is, you know, you've got these campaigns, you've got these units, mark and track your wins. Because I think right now the IWW actually racks up a lot of wins and they don't, and even sometimes they trumpet them, but they don't actually mark them and track them. And I think every campaign should have a win sheet that actually lists the concessions that they've won. And I started doing that with some of the IWW campaigns that I'm either close to or working with. And, and it's, it's actually pretty impressive on business union terms. The, 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 they're not insignificant wins in industries where unions don't tend to have much of a foothold. Um, and then from there, I think that they need to scale out, learn to branch out. Okay, so you organize a coffee shop in this side of town. How are you going to do the one across the street that's the competition? How do you bring them in? And then there's going to be increased power and a horizon of power and a horizon of demands that they can move forward. Now, that's one side of it. The other side of it is inside the mainstream labor movement, how do they break out of the way? And I think that that's a more complicated and difficult question. And I think that there's kind of different models there for that, right? One is, is the kind of labor notes model, trade union reform, 
the main problem is that the leaders are sellouts and unions are anti-democratic. So we're going to make unions more democratic. So leaders who aren't sellouts who get in and that is kind of a hamster wheel that's been going in the labor movement for about 40 years where people become sellouts and they're in and then the new next reform caucus goes after the last reform caucus and you basically have this churn uh, officer churn um the other one is the kind of total ultra left um just organize the floor wildcat and enforce concessions i have some sympathy for that position yeah that position seems to work in places it, it does and, and that was kind of my experience at the post office as a, as a as a working organizer on the floor Often we were at loggerheads with the local and national leadership. Um, and as a member, it's different than, than being staff on all four members taking and speaking their mind. And, and, and there's more lively room for democracy there. But I think that also though unions, I think some of them are starting to realize that there is a trap there and there is a problem. And I think one of the, one of the solutions is that unions actually do need to be clear. And I think McLevy, she comes close to it in some of the YouTube videos where she says, striking is a right. And I think that it's important that we talk about that. But the problem is that unions sign no strike clauses. And that's not a legislative right. That's not a right that was taken away from them. That was a right they freely gave up at the bargaining table. And that's the danger on the business union side of it with the no strike clauses is that like, you know, lots of jurisdictions like New York or all of Canada, uh, you know, the, basically there's a new, no strike clause read in uh, to the contract. And so everybody's like, well, we just signed the no strike clause because it's in there. But the flip side of that in bargaining is why are you signing things that are statutory minimums in your contract, if, especially if they're a matter of principle. The other one is management's rights. Do we acknowledge management's absolute, unalienable, and unilateral right to manage the production process? Because I'm inclined to think even a lot of conservative trade unions don't actually believe that. And it's, it's a bedrock fundamental principle of most collective agreements and most unions in this country. And those are, those are questions that they seem kind of like kind of like almost like like a, like i'm just flying the flag or what you call virtue signaling or whatever but they're actually real real fundamental statements of principle that are important and when you sign away those statements of principle and collective agreement that will come back to you because you're simultaneously if you're fighting for the right to strike as an absolute thing if you're fighting against management's absolute right to manage the production process what you sign in a collective agreement is is what you give up freely it's what two parties agree to. And yeah, you can bring pressure to each other. And this is actually the third point that both sides need to understand. The IWW and similar projects outside and the stuff on the inside is sometimes it's okay to be without a contract for a while, but you need to have a basis for existing that's not dependent on that contract. And that's why dues checkoff is pretty scary and dangerous. But that's also why unions that are built in right to work kind of regimes actually have a certain resiliency and power that other unions don't. If your basis for existing is not fundamentally dependent on that contract, you can hold out longer. You don't need to sign a deal you don't believe in. Uh, because ultimately, uh, this is the thing, to go back to the example of the, the, the contract with the radical union, right? It was impressive that they had a contract at all, but nobody knows the contents of that contract. And the contract is not a goal. It's a tactic. And if you're going to sign contracts, you need to understand what you're getting out of those contracts and what the point of it is, because the contract itself can deliver a certain amount, but it also will take a lot away. With that, I think that's a really good conclusion to this conversation. Appreciate you coming on the show. And maybe we could bring you back in the future, because as we talked about the need to discuss the histories of the CIO and why they were defeated, it would be interesting to talk about 
the history of the IWW at its peak and why did that fall apart? Absolutely. All right. I'll have to do some. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Take care, man.